Welcome to Faith Is. I'm so glad you've joined us again this week, or perhaps if this is your first time listening, I want you to know you are welcome here. We're so glad you've chosen to spend some time with us. On this program, Faith Is, we consider that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And so we work to encourage each other to have more and more confidence in God because we believe he is trustworthy. And that's an important step in our spiritual growth, in our understanding of God, in our walk with God. We want to have faith in him. Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. Yes, we're a real church, just like the church I hope you attend. We believe the Bible. We consider the Bible God's Word, and He teaches us through it. We are not going to be swayed by current fads or fictions. We're going to listen to what God has to say because we believe, we are convinced, we know that God tells us the truth. And we're going to pay attention to that, and we want to know the truth because the truth is what guides us in the right way to live. The truth is what leads us to God. In fact, the Bible says the truth will set you free. And what I think that means in part, it sets you free from getting caught up in all kinds of goofy thinking and helps you have a freedom of spirit, a freedom of life, a contentment that really keeps you unshackled to all the strangeness that goes on these days. And so we're going to talk about some of those kind of things today. We're, we spend our time together, I, I often think of it this way, I don't think I mention it very often, but I often think of our time together as this is our chance to think out loud. Or maybe it's my chance to think out loud, if you will. But we don't necessarily think we have come to every possible conclusion about a subject, but we want to think about it. We want to reason together. We want to consider what God has to say to us. So I kind of think about this as thinking out loud on America out loud. So why not? And we're going to do several things today. We're going to look at a passage of scripture. We're going to review some of what we talked about last week as kind of setting the the stage or the beginning frame of mind for us to think about the the next thoughts that God gives us today. I'm going to get to um, something I haven't done for a while, but I've been thinking and I want to talk about 10 things I've been thinking. And I think you might be surprised by a few of those. We'll get to those a little later on. Hopefully I won't spend too much time on those to uh, be distracting, but hopefully we'll spend enough time on each one to help us think through some of the things that are going on today. And often what I do when we do these 10 things, in case you're new to that idea, is I talk about things that have been on my mind or experiences I've had or maybe how something that's going on in the world relates to something that God tells us in the Bible. I don't want to get caught up on every flavor or issue of the day, but I do want to talk about things that are important, and I do want to guide us in the right direction and help us think about how God might want us to think about some of these things so we don't find ourselves in a ditch someplace. We don't find ourselves confused or uh, compromised or who knows what. So let's plunge in. We'll start off with this idea of of anxiety that we talked about last week. And last week we asked and answered the question, is anxiety a sin? And without going into everything we talked about, the short answer is, 
as it's referred to in John chapter 14, where Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. I am not convinced that that's describing anxiety, or as it says here, a troubled heart as a sin. I think these are words of consolation that Jesus is saying to us, you don't have to have a troubled heart. You don't have to have emotional upset. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be anxious. I think what he's saying is, believe in me, trust me, have absolute confidence in my trustworthiness so you can have a calmness of spirit. You don't have to be upset because you have every confidence that God is going to see you through. And over and over, the Bible says God will see us through. So the substitute for this troubled heart, if you will, in John chapter 14, verse 1, is to believe in God. And we can believe in God. I suggested last week that there were a few times, and we didn't name all of the possible ones. I just pointed out a couple that that Jesus seemed to exhibit this idea of some kind of emotional upset. It's not always identified as troubled heart or anxiety in the scriptures, but it is clear that Jesus experienced the emotions that we often describe by saying we're anxious. And so we talked about the fact that if Jesus had some kind of concerns from time to time, some kind of reason to have a troubled heart, then it seems that we could not define troubled heart as sin because Jesus did not sin. We also reminded ourselves that, that when we talk about this, we're not talking about this in, in terms of these uh, anxiety diagnoses that people get. I, I, don't, I don't know all the disorders related to that. I'm not a medical or a, a, any other kind of professional. I'm a pastor. I understand it through the Bible. And so we're not talking about medical kinds of things here. We're talking about what Jesus talked about, this idea of having a troubled heart. And so Jesus comes along and he gives us this consolation that we don't have to be troubled, we don't have to be upset, that we can trust him. And one of the things that I wanted us to remember today is the idea of what the New Testament means when it uses the word heart. And yes, I think it's an appropriate translation, when you look at some of the original stuff, and I'm not an expert on the original stuff, I look at what experts have written and and use the tools that they've given us, very helpful stuff. It reminds me that while the word in the original language is appropriately translated heart, what the ancient people thought of when they said heart is different than what we tend to think of. We use the word in a couple of ways, one meeting the pump that circulates our blood, that's our heart. And we also tend to mean it in reference to our emotions, particularly affection or love. But we kind of think of it in those two ways. Now, when when they thought of it in New Testament times, and when they used that word, they were referring to the total self, not the way we think of it, but they were thinking of the totality of their being. And so I like to think of that in these three ways. The totality totality of our being, or our heart, as the New Testament describes it, consists of our will, mind, and emotions. And in any order, that's not a hierarchy, that's just a description of this dynamic process that makes up who we are, that makes up our, as I said, total self. 
And one of the most important things about that is to understand that that's a description of function in that goes on inside of our being. So we all have a mind, and when we talk about mind, we think about what we think about. And you're thinking about things right now. I'm thinking about things right now. That's what our mind does. We'll think about, think about different things a little later, and you may be distracted, and while you're trying to listen to what I say, you may be distracted because you're thinking about something else. That's our mind, thinking. Our mind is where we process our experiences, where we consider what is the wise thing to do, consider what is wisdom, what is folly. Our mind is where we recognize that some things are right and some things are wrong. And so we clarify those. We wrestle with those sometimes. Uh, sometimes we rationalize those things. That's all what our mind does. Now, our mind helps our will. And in many respects, our will helps our mind. But our will, by contrast, is the part of us that chooses. At some point, our mind can think about something as right and wrong. And we can recognize one thing is right and one thing is wrong but it's our will that actually chooses right and wrong, and then we put into action based on that choice. So our mind is where we think about these things, our will is where we choose, and we recognize that choices matter, and we need to make good choices. So that's the mind and the will. Now the emotions, I said that was three parts of this idea of heart, and I mentioned that that's mind, thinking, will, choosing, and emotions, then we can think of as the part of us that feels things. We might feel sad, we might feel glad, we might feel like a smile's on our face, or we might feel like there's a frown on our face, and so our expressions will reflect how we're feeling, our emotions. And generally speaking, we don't think of our emotions as being either right and wrong. They are just what they are. That's one of the reasons that when I refer to this idea of a troubled heart or anxiety, that I don't want to label that as a right or wrong. There are emotions that are better for us than others, and we need to consider how we handle the emotional side of our being. And that has a lot more to do with the way we think about things and then the choices we make. And so we can, at that point, manage our emotions. But our emotions are the feeling part of that. One of the reasons that it's hard to think of emotions as sinful or righteous is because you can't turn them on and off with a switch, and you can't choose them. Now, there are emotions that lead to harmful things that lead to sinful actions, and there are emotions that do not lead to sinful actions. In that sense, we need to consider their contribution to right and wrong, but our emotions tend to be things that we feel, not things that we decide to have. So I hope that makes sense. They just, they just flare up, and maybe you think about it this way. Yes, our emotions just flare up, but that doesn't mean we have to flare up. You know, you've heard people say it. I've said it probably. I try not to say it anymore because I, because I've kind of realized that it's kind of a, well, it's kind of a dumb thing to say, and it's it's really, it really reveals something about me I don't want to reveal, and and it tends to reveal something about me that I don't want to be true. But you've probably heard people say something. He makes me so mad, or she makes me so mad. Well, 
that's entirely possible. They might do something that brings out the mad in you. But you know, really, nobody can make me mad. Nobody can make you mad. We do that all on our own. And that's how we process in our mind what's going on. That's how we choose in our will to be mad. And so the emotions keep going. Now, if I want to say, you're, you're not going to offend me. And in some ways, I think people of faith who have confidence in God should become unoffendable. And so we should, we should not take things personally, even when they're meant personally. We should not let them get to us because we know we believe in Jesus and we trust him. And so just because somebody is trying to, shall I say, make me mad or hurt my feelings, I don't have to let them. I can decide that wisdom doesn't allow me to be manipulated by their nonsense. And so that's me choosing because I've thought about these things and my emotions then respond to that choice. In the same way I've said it, I take no credit for this on my own except the responsibility God gives me, that I determined back at the beginning of the pandemic that I wasn't going to be afraid. People were ramping up with fear, and I could sense that I could have gone down that road easily. And I realized, and again, I think it was that the Holy Spirit said to me, don't be afraid. And I realized that there's nothing helpful about being afraid. So I I wasn't afraid during the whole thing. I, I was careful when I needed to be. I was respectful of other people's concerns, but I wasn't living in fear. I didn't want to get sick. Nobody does. But I wasn't going to be afraid because I knew that didn't help and I knew I could trust God. And besides, God says to us over and over, don't be afraid. So I decided I wouldn't be afraid. Well, okay, so that's a little bit of an idea of how we process and and manage our emotions. And I think that we can live in such a way that we develop wisdom so that our emotions don't control us. I think that's what Jesus was saying here. Do not let your hearts be troubled. He said this in the setting before he went to the cross. So in just a short time, in just a short time, his disciples were going to have every reason to have troubled hearts. And he was saying, believe me, believe what I say, trust in God. You don't have to be upset. Those were words of consolation to them. They're words of consolation to us. And I don't want to live in upset. And I don't think you do either. You see, there's, there's no address for us who trust in God on Anxiety Avenue. There, there's just no place for us to live there. And even more than that, I, I checked Anxiety Avenue, and it's posted no parking. So it's a no parking zone. Just stay out of Anxiety Avenue because God helps us believe in Him and not get into such a state of having a troubled heart, a troubled mind, confusion, and all of that. We can't avoid an anxious moment. Sometimes those things just happen. A surprise of one kind or another, some kind of unpleasantry. I went home for lunch today, and down at the corner, major intersection from the church, there was an accident. Well, I wasn't anxious for me, but there's a certain amount of, oh, what happened? Okay, I get that. That just happens. I don't don't worry about that. Because I know that I can avoid an anxious life. And I work at it like you do, but I'm determined 
to hear the words of Jesus, do not let your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. So we're not going to live on Anxious Avenue, we're not even going to park on Anxious Avenue. It's, it's posted, no parking. I wish I could say if you park there you'll be towed away, but I can't do that. Uh, I'd like to. Every now and then I see people that are parking on Anxious Avenue and I want to just grab them and tow them out of there, but I can't do that. But you can do that for yourself by the mercies of God because we trust in God. Okay, so now let's take this a little step further and think about this through in a little different way. And so I want to, I want to, um, well, I guess before we do that, let's 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 remind ourselves in this regard because I mentioned this last week, and I think we need to just process this a little bit more. So before we get to the the next thing that that I think contributes greatly to our anxious lives, I want us to make sure that we we realize that part of the way we manage this business of troubled hearts is that we do it intentionally, and so our emotions come from inside of us and they're based upon things that come to us well what i mean by that is our emotions can be thought of and i think this is a very helpful way to think about it as constructed we build them in this way is what i mean by that so what's happening in us comes to us from our senses from something we see, something we read, something we hear, maybe something we smell. If you smell smoke, that's going to be information that's going to affect your emotions. So any of our senses can be the source of input that affects us. At the same time we get that information, we begin to process that information. That's our mind thinking about things. Because the smoke I smell could mean there's a fire, and it could mean I need to pay attention to the building I'm in, or it could mean, if I'm outside, it could be the smell of leaves burning in the fall, which is, that in that case, something that I find kind of enjoyable. It doesn't worry me. So my emotion is, concert, is controlled at that point by identifying the source and then deciding what do I need to do about that. So it's constructed. That makes sense? Okay, I hope it does. Well... In the sense that they're constructed, then we need to realize that the things that influence us are a part of that. So that's our thinking. And Philippians tells us that we need to take our thoughts captive so we can manage what we think and how we think. And yes, you can. You might think you can't turn it off, but we can. If the Bible says we can take our thoughts captive, I guess we can. We also need to remember that our choices affect us. And when we choose rightly, then we are more at peace because we know we did the right thing. When we do the wrong thing, we know it and we feel it. And so we need to, we need to think about the right things. We need to take our thoughts captive and we need to trust God's faithfulness because he will help us. All right, so that's a that's a little bit more review than I thought we needed, but maybe that's helpful. I, I just think we, so many of us live live with so much anxiety these days, that we just need to we just need to change the way we do it. Let, let me give you another example. I wasn't going to use this, but but it just occurs to me because people will sometimes say, but but what about when it's when I'm concerned about somebody that's that's in my family or whatever? Well, there was a close member of our family 
oh, I don't know, a year or so or two, I don't remember now the time exactly, that that we found out one morning had to have immediate uh, sort of kind of close to emergency surgery. Well, that will get your anxious mind going, won't it? Well, it did mine too. And I began to think about that and I began to think, well, I just need to, to beg God to fix this. And uh, I started to, and then I, then I stopped. I said, oh, wait a minute. Now, I know what God has told me and that God cares about these things far more than I do. God loves this member of our family, and and he doesn't want bad things to happen. In fact, he wants good to come out of this. I know that. I know that it doesn't always work out that way, but God has no intention of harming us. He wants to help us. And so instead of allowing my anxiety to burst into full bloom, so to speak, I just began to pray a whole different way, and I said to God what I knew about God. Thank you that I know you care about this situation. I know you care about this person more than I do. I know that you know my concern for that, and I just want to thank you that you are present in that situation. You are present for that person. You are helping that person, and I just want you to know I trust you with the outcome of that, and I thank you for being there and not abandoning us and not leaving us on our own, that you are helping every one and you are working in everything in that situation to bring out a good outcome. Now, fortunately, it was a good outcome, and I, I want to be transparent here that reinforced to me that that was a helpful way for me to pray. Now, if it hadn't been a good outcome, might I have felt differently? Maybe. I like to think that I would have faith in God's trustworthiness and that no matter what the outcome, that God would still be present with us and for us and helping us. And I'm convinced that he would because he doesn't leave us. But in that case, two things resulted really well. One, I didn't worry all morning over that thing, and it didn't distract me from what I needed to be paying attention to, and it was a good outcome, and we were all delighted. So, yes, we can live differently than we sometimes think we can. We can rise above some of these things. So, now today, I want us to talk about a little bit what I have, um, I guess, kind of loosely or uh, a little bit uncertainly, I was trying to think how to frame this exactly, and and I came up with, I want to talk about the greatest source of anxiety. Because if we're going to deal with this, we need to deal with that which is the greatest source, don't you think? I, I thought so. So I want us to read a little bit from John chapter 14 again. We're at verse 15, and we want to focus on one idea out of these verses. I, I'll read several of them because I don't like to consider these thoughts out of the context of what the Bible is giving us. So I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version, updated edition, John chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus is speaking. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. On that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. 
They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me, and those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. I want to stop there. That's in the middle of that paragraph, but that's far enough for what we need to talk about. So we need to talk about, and we need to think about here, this idea of, of what is the greatest source of anxiety. What is the greatest source of anxiety? Now, here in this first verse that I read, and I really want to focus our thoughts on these few ideas. The verse says in Jesus' words, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So it's very important if we're going to live a life that's free of anxiety that we love God by keeping his commandments. Now, a lot of times people get a little nervous when we start talking about this, but I just want to be right up front and say that the greatest source of anxiety is the realization of unconfessed sin. When we know we have done wrong and we refuse to confess and bring it to God, repent, change our ways, then... That's a source of anxiety because we are continually recognizing that something is not right. So if that's going on, then there's a few things that we have to recognize. That means our mind knows what we're doing or not doing. So this part of us is thinking it knows. It knows. And our will knows we haven't chosen the right thing. Our minds know the consequences of continuing in sin. And so then we can begin to wrestle with the dread that brings because we know that the consequences of sin are not good. At the same time, our will knows what we should be doing. And so our will is trying to say to our mind, why don't you do the right thing? And our mind and our will are wrestling with all of this because we know the right thing. We're just not doing the right thing. Now, let me make sure we understand. I'm not just talking about things that we're supposed to not do. Like the Bible says, don't steal. Well, I get that. But God often tells us things we should do. And that's particularly evident in this idea that Jesus gives us that we need to love God by keeping his commandments. So we wrestle with all these things and our minds keep trying to rationalize whatever this thing is that we know we're wrong about. Okay, we'll say, we'll, we'll think of things and say to ourselves things like, and our, and our will is listening to this the whole time, and it's weakening because it wants to be convinced by the mind. But we'll say things like, well, I kind of enjoy this sin. And we think at the same time that, well, you know, if I obey Jesus, then I won't have the same sense of enjoyment of life. I will be missing out on whatever it is this sin gives us. And then sometimes we, we spiritualize. And, and you may think differently than what I'm describing here. You, you'll know God is faithful, he tells us. But sometimes we'll think, well, well there's grace, and, and God will understand because of grace. Now really, if we know what we're doing, do we really think that God will give us a pass, no matter what we call it? We call it grace or whatever. Will God really give us a pass? Would you give someone a pass that wasn't doing right and you knew it? So let's not 
confuse that grace in here. That's not what the Bible means when it says grace. Grace is not a free pass. Grace is not a get out of the sin card. And then we'll say, well, you know, this isn't really as bad as what I see somebody else doing, and they seem to be perfectly content. Well, they may or may not be content, but who cares? What God is saying to us is what matters, yes? Okay. And then it might be the very same issue. And we might say, well, this person doesn't think this issue is sin. Why is it sin for me? And again, who cares? If God is speaking to you, he's speaking to you. And we need to listen. We don't need to be playing all these mental gymnastics where we're trying to weaken our will so that we will get what we want, or at least what our mind thinks we want, so we can have the emotion we want, even though we have to put up with the anxiety that's related to it. Boy, do we sound like a mess sometimes? Well, we probably are sometimes. But that's the good news, that that the Bible tells us that Jesus came to make us whole, to, to make sure that we don't have to live in this mess but to make sure that we can live free, that we can live the way we need to live. And we don't have to be tied up in knots over this anxiety. Sometimes I think the best description of what the gospel wants to do for people is that the gospel wants to untie the knots in our lives because we just get so tied up in knots. And the Bible wants to make us whole and wants to make us free of that kind of anxiety. It wants to give us life like it was meant to be lived. And that's what we all want, isn't it? So if you find yourself wrestling with this, what do you do? Well, you resolve it by agreeing with God and doing what he says. That's what repenting is, agreeing and then changing your life. Changing our lives. Think about that. What a concept. We're anxious and we don't like it. And we could change and we'd like it. Well, that's a little bit what we're talking about, and we're going to explore that a little bit more when we come back, so don't go away. I'll see you in a minute. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution, Cofix Rx. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Did you know that doctors and nurses have been swabbing their noses with povidone iodine to protect from airborne threats like colds, flus, and pandemic-era strains for decades? Cofix RX took that idea and made a more complete nasal formula with lasting cleansing effects. Maybe you're traveling soon or going to an event. Are you concerned somebody nearby might be sick? Maybe the office or classroom stresses you out. Get yourself a bottle of Cofix RX nasal solution. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix Rx nasal solution cleanse. That's cofixrx.com. Save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD at cofixrx.com. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years. 
brush, floss, repeat. We're told to use fluoride, which doesn't really address the acid-creating bacteria. That is where the dentist-recommended Spry Dental Defense System shines. Spry products contain xylitol, a natural sugar, which helps get rid of those nasty, smelly, acid-creating bacteria in our mouth. The best way to care for your teeth and gums is by using Spry. The Spry Dental Defense System has a wide variety of products, toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and chewing gums that are designed to work together to keep your teeth clean and mouth healthy and smelling sweet all day long. To get your oral care back on track in an easy, effective, and very tasty way, switch to Spry today. Ask your dentist about Xylitol and the Spry products. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural product retailers. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. Welcome back. I'm glad you stayed with us. We're going to continue our thought out loud, our thinking out loud about this idea of anxiety and focusing now on what I'm calling the source of our greatest anxiety, and that is unconfessed sin. The Bible and Jesus himself frames our responsibility, our relationship with God in terms of love. You probably are aware that when people ask Jesus what's the greatest commandment, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. At our church, we say, love God generously and people graciously to help us think about that. And it's very helpful because we tend to get caught up in a lot of do's and don'ts. And there are some do's and don'ts. I, I think it's ridiculous to think there aren't. The difference is that we do and we don't do what we do and we don't do because of love, not because of a heavy-handedness by God or someone else. Okay, so we need to think about this idea of what what does the Bible mean, what does God mean for us to understand about love for God. I think that's important and helpful because I think in these days we don't think about love very well, very correctly. So for some people, they think love for God is, well, I like God and I'm okay with God existing. And I think they want to add in parenthesis or they imply, as long as God leaves me alone, I'll leave him alone and we'll be good. Well, that's not love for God. Or some people might say, I like God, and, and he should like me because I'm such a nice guy. Well, I hope you're a nice guy. I do. But notice that when we make a statement like that, we're defining nice guy by us, not by what God thinks. And, and we're saying in that, well, I measure up, so God should think I measure up. Or sometimes people say they believe in God like, doesn't everyone believe in God? Okay, next. Well, that's not love for God. Or some people say, well, of course there's a God. 
and he should make sure I get to heaven. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? That changes everything because it puts all the responsibility on God and it avoids our personal responsibility when we say, God should get me to heaven. Well, that's not love for God. That's presumption for sure. Maybe a few other things you could think of. Uh, and So I guess we need to get the idea that, that love for God is not at all the same as accepting that there is a God. It's not at all that. Love for God is much more intentional and requires action. And here in these verses in John that we are looking at, it's very specific that Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. So, so we need to think that, okay, God defines love based upon commandments. And we need to think about that. And that goes all the way back to this idea of love for God that I mentioned when I mentioned Jesus' words to us, goes all the way back to Deuteronomy and Leviticus. All the way back there, God is giving us this idea that we need to love him and to love people. So it's not a new thing in the New Testament. It's not a new thing. People want to say, well, now it's grace instead of law. God has always admonished his people to love him. That goes all the way back from the beginning when God was relating to people. So we need to understand that. And we need to understand that failure to keep the commandments, like Jesus says, if if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and that includes the Ten Commandments and others. Failure to do that is sin. And so Jesus defines love for God as keeping the commandments, and failure to keep the commandments is sin. Whenever we have known sin in our lives, then we run the risk and we introduce a level of anxiety that we weren't meant to carry. And that's what I want to help us with. And I want us to say to ourselves and to God that we will begin to honor you intentionally because of love. We will honor you intentionally because you are God and we want to measure up and and we want to recognize And I want to help you with this too, that properly understood, sin is a known event. It's a known violation of a commandment. So when we know God says, don't steal, and we steal, we know we've done wrong. When God is pressing on you because he wants you to do something intentionally, then we need to lean into that. And love leans in, and love does its best, and more than its best, because love never quits. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about what love does. Look it up. There's also a famous prayer that Francis of Assisi is credited with writing. Some people say he didn't, but I'm not prepared to say that. Let's just give St. Francis credit. But you remember this prayer? Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. And now listen to the words that continue because it's the idea of how you sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, 
to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. See, that's the idea of love. It's an intentional, it's an intentional m- movement to express concern and care and faithfulness to God and to people. Loving God is keeping his commandments, and chief of those, if we will love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves, we will have kept the commandments as Jesus described it. So I hope you will. It's that important. Well, we may talk a little bit about that some more, but I promised you that we would talk about these things that have been on my mind. And so I've, I've identified 10 things that I've been thinking about. And since we haven't done this for a while, I guess I've been doing a lot of thinking. I just haven't written them down. But these are the ones that have occurred to me recently, and I think we should talk about them. And I want to help you with them because perhaps one or two of these will be helping you with a problem in life. Because part of what we need to do with faith, part of what we need to do with love, is we need to apply it so we know what steps to take. So, 10 things I think. Number one, I think we have a serious problem with public school education. Now, that probably doesn't come as a great shock to many people, but I think we need to make sure we think about this and not not try to put it off. Public school education has changed a great deal since I was in school. One of the best Sunday school teachers in my church was a public school teacher across the hall from my second grade class. Well, I didn't have anything to worry about because I knew if something strange was going to happen in that school, she would be there and would protect us from that. It never occurred to me that anything strange would happen, frankly, because I didn't have to worry about that like we do now. But things happen in our schools that we would be shocked by. And if you're not paying attention, please pay attention for the sake of your children and the children you love. Please pay attention for the sake of the teachers. So many teachers are being put in such terrible positions these days and they're required to do things they don't want to do and they're restrained from helping children the way they would like to. I had a conversation with someone recently that this person is not allowed to to do what this person learned to do because there's so much chaos in the school. We have serious problems. Second thing I think along the same line is that I think we have spectacular options to public school education. Now, I'm involved, and I will continue to be involved, with trying to bring improvements and solve the problems of public school education, because we have tens of thousands of students that are going to be in our public schools. I don't want to abandon them. I want to try to help them. But I also recognize that if you are a Christian, and if you care about your children getting an education that acknowledges God and does not include some of the things that God says are just evil, then you need to take a serious look at your options for public school education. I remember when our kids were little and I heard people talk about homeschooling and I thought we could never do that. It would be an impossibly difficult job. Well, I was naive. I didn't know much in those days. I only know a little bit more now about some things and a whole lot less about other things. But I do know this, that we have great options to public school education. I know about how how the situation is in Florida. I know what our options are. Many of them are available for you too. Uh, As far as I know, just about every place will allow for homeschooling, some kind of home education. 
And yes, you can teach your children. You are smart enough. You are capable enough. And you can buy materials for as little as $300 for a year of education, for a year of teaching your children. So money is not the problem anymore. Materials is not the problem. Support is not the problem. There are all kinds of things out there to help you. And wherever you live, seek out the people that are doing it and that know how to help you navigate it. In Florida, we're doing that to try to help parents understand what their options are. I can't speak to your state. Don't know how the situation is where you are, but there are spectacular options that will help your children and rescue them from situations they don't even know how to tell you about because they're children and they don't know that what they're being told is right or wrong. They just believe it because you've sent them to school and said, listen to your teacher. Pay attention. Consider the options. Now, I know because I think number three, that to embrace these options requires courage and a reimagining of education and what that means. You know, I always thought of going to school as you go to a classroom, you sit at a desk and teacher talks and you do your work and all is well at the end of the day, except sometimes the day seems very long. Education is not about that method. Education is helping your children learn. It doesn't require a classroom setting. Maybe that's the best that you can do for your child. Maybe you send them to a private school. But education is not about going to school. Education is about learning. And we need to improve our thinking about that so that we recognize that it's not about a certain method. Just because I went to school in a certain way doesn't mean my children have to. My children need to learn in the best way that I can help them learn, and they need to learn the right things. The fourth thing, I think, is that churches can support Christian education without having to set up a traditional school. A lot of times, and for years, I thought the only way a church could help was to set up a school, and that was seemed like, and it is a pretty big task, to set up a school that's similar to the school down the street. That's a very difficult job. But I want you to know there are things called micro-schools that churches can help facilitate that churches can encourage parents to get together and support each other on a micro-school. There are, there are ways that you can set up a ministry to help parents, even to help pay for the costs of homeschool and alternative education. So I want to encourage you who are in churches to think about how you might adjust your ministries or add to your ministries to help parents. I want to remind all of the teachers out there that there are ways for teachers, entrepreneurial teachers, to set up a micro school and earn the same or nearly the same, maybe more, depending on the situation, than you're earning now teaching in your public school. And you'll, you'll be delighted. I, I just know it's possible. I haven't done it. I admit it. We're helping people do it in Florida. We're going to have some better experience in a few months. But the, the nuts and bolts of it are there, and you can do it too. So take a serious thought about Christian education and how you can help the kids that you know. Number five, I think often the most famous people are the most gracious. Now, over my lifetime, I've met some famous people. I'm not going to give you a list because I don't even remember some of them. But I remember from the very first time I met somebody that was pretty famous, when I was, when it was, I was serving a church, it was in the 80s, mid-80s, and this person came to town to, to do a concert, a famous opera singer, 
and the guy was as gracious as could be. I, I did not know what to expect, but you hear these things about opera singers this and opera singers that. He was as nice as anybody I'd ever met and as down to earth. And I've noticed that with other people that I've met. So don't be intimidated when you get a chance to talk to people. Often, the most famous people are the most gracious. I'm not naive. There may be some scoundrels out there. Okay, I get it. But my experience has been that some of these people that we hold up as though they're just beyond our ability to talk to, they're just as nice as could be and just as down to earth. And I want to encourage you to consider that. If you have that opportunity, don't be intimidated. So I say that to say this. The sixth thing I think is I had the honor of having dinner and of meeting Glenn Beck recently. Now, I had the honor of sitting at the same table with him during this event and uh, having a very nice steak dinner. A lot of things led up to that, and I don't get into all those details. But prior to that, we were given the opportunity to have our picture taken with him, a picture taken with him. And, and he was as nice as could be. And in that time, he was as nice as he could be at the table. I had a private conversation with him about some things that were important to me. I'll talk to you a little bit about what that was in a minute. But I just want you to know that I've had these experiences and not because of who I am or anything, just because God is gracious and gives me that opportunity. And he was an example of a gracious person. Now, I also think that when Glenn Beck spoke, and I don't know a lot about Glenn Beck, don't misunderstand, we're not personal friends. We're, we got acquainted. We met on Saturday night. I've listened to some of his radio stuff. That's it. But I, I think when Glenn Beck spoke, he spoke in a way that many of us would resonate with. He warned the audience. And, and he was not harsh, but he was very straightforward. He warned the audience that America is doing some things that will result in judgment unless we change. And I thought that was so interesting that he would make that forthright statement in a private situation where he didn't have to. He could say what he wanted to. He could entertain the audience and make them laugh or whatever else. But he was very clear that he's concerned that America faces judgment unless we repent. And I think he's right. People sometimes ask me, is there any hope? And I always say yes. As long as there's a God in heaven, there is hope. But sometimes that hope depends upon our repentance. That's the message of the Old Testament when God spoke to Israel. And over and over, he begged them to change. They didn't. And too many times, they suffered the consequences. Now, I also think, number eight, that we confuse repentance with a feeling instead of with real change. I don't think Glenn Beck was making that mistake. That, that I didn't hear him saying that. I just want to correct that here because I think a lot of Christians get this idea that, well, if I feel bad enough about it, that's repentance. Well, you might feel bad about it, okay? Your mind might process that and your will realizes how badly you've messed up. And so then you, your emotion follows and you would say, yeah, I feel bad. But repentance, as the Bible talks about it, is really about change. And we need to change, and we need to change now. In our nation and often in our lives, it starts with us. And that's number nine of the things I think. 
I listened carefully, and Glenn Beck spoke for a long time. I wish I had timed it. It was at least an hour and a half. Could have been a little longer. I don't know. It didn't matter. It was interesting, and it was fine. I didn't, I didn't object to that. But I was listening to what he had to say because I'm kind of keen to hear that kind of stuff and think about that because I think about a lot of things. And he mentioned three things that I had heard before and thought before and said before. They weren't all original with me. In fact, I don't suppose any of them were original with me because I really, I try to talk about what God thinks and talks about. But he mentioned three things. First thing he mentioned was covenant. And he was particularly talking about the covenant we have as a nation with each other. Our Constitution, Declaration of Independence, those are all covenant documents where we agree together. And so they can be properly described as a covenant. And he was reminding us we need to get back to that covenant that we made with each other and live by it. And he's right. Now, I think of covenant as it relates to God. And so when he and I had a private conversation after the, after his talk, I said to him, yeah, covenant is the primary way God relates to his people. And I've thought that for a long time. And I thought it was so interesting that God is using this idea of covenant in so many ways, and we need to listen. Second thing he said that really got my attention was he talked about all the lies that are out there today. And boy, that's gotten my attention in the last, well, not maybe a year, maybe not quite a year, particularly noticing how often people deliberately deceive us. And, and he said very, very firmly. And, you know, a lot of us Americans, we've, we've come to put up with lying and liars. He said, we must not tolerate lies in our lives. We must not. And I agree on all the levels. We must not tolerate lies because we are being deceived in so many ways. And, and I don't have time to get into that right now, what that means. But if you are discerning, you will begin to pick up on it. And if you want to be discerning, the best way to sharpen your discernment is to spend more time understanding what God says to us in the Bible, because he tells us the truth. A simple example of that is the gender ideology. Read the Bible. Read the first chapters of Genesis. It's very clear. God created male and female. He created people in his image. Trying to suggest, believe, act like it's different than that is simply living a lie. That's an example of how God tells us the truth, and we shouldn't get caught up in the lies. The third thing he said was something that I think so many people overlook. And I've said it to people. People will ask me, well, what can we do about, and they'll name something grand on the national scale. And, and here lately, I've been starting to say to them, nothing. We can't do anything about that. They look at me funny, and they don't like to hear that answer, but it's true. But then I go on to say, you know, we don't need to worry about that. We need to worry about what we can do now in our location, what we can do intentionally to make a difference for God and for good. And most people go away not very happy with that because they want to change something they can't change, and because they can't change it, they have an excuse They don't want to address what they can change, and because they can change it, they don't have an excuse for not doing it. So if you can change something, get involved and do it. Do you have the courage to step up to to Jesus' vision for our lives of loving God and loving people? 
So we have to have courage to do these things. And, and until we have courage, we really won't have vision because we'll turn that vision off because we're afraid and we're not going to try because we don't think it can be done. And when you start living courageously in one area and then the next area of your life and the next area of your life, I am amazed at the things that God will bring to mind and say, what about this? Because he knows we need courage. And then he gives us vision. And then will we have the will to do it? Will you step up today and decide, I'm going to live a life free of anxiety. I'm going to live a life of love for God. I'm going to love my neighbors. I'm going to to pray in a new way. And I'm going to be the solution to the problems of our day because God is calling me and I'm answering. I'm Pastor Rick. I'll see you next week.